Welcome to the first Block Fuel podcast. We are joined by Graham Moore. So we'll be diving into, of course, what Polymesh is. You have quite the interesting background. So for those that don't know you, I'd like to always start off with who you are. Uh, I was checking out your LinkedIn. You had worked at Cushman and Wakefield. Then you went into be the creative director of Spartan Race, the author of B is for Bitcoin, and of course, have now entered into the crypto sphere, working and leading Polymesh. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. First episode here for you guys in the show. As I mentioned, you know, I've done a bunch of different things, different ways the old ones. It was during my university days. So my pretty much my entire family works in real estate, you know, something I was maybe going to do. But I got more excited with finance. So started working in finance as kind of my first, you know, real job after university. Got my CFA level one. Thought I was going to go down the route of being an investment advisor, but just got really bored with it um, pretty quickly and working in an office and, you know, trying to earn people 8% on their money instead of 7% was just something that wasn't really getting me excited about going to work anymore. So I actually left that job. Um, and pretty much right when I left, I found out about Bitcoin. Um, and, and I say found out about Bitcoin, I mean, I mean, actually kind of started to understand what Bitcoin was. So I'd heard about it before, you know, 2013, 2014. But back then I was so excited about finance and investing. And I loved reading about Warren Buffett. And Warren Buffett said, Bitcoin is bad. And then eventually he said it was rat poison. Um, so I said, yeah, Bitcoin's stupid. You know, why should anybody buy this thing? It's a penny stock. It's a scam. It goes up and down and there's no real value there. So I just kind of dis- disregarded it. But then I actually, uh, after I think I left my job in finance, I think Warren Buffett's cloud kind of was no longer hanging over my head. And I started to watch my actual videos and read some actual information about Bitcoin. And so what I realized is, no, this is a very exciting technology transformation that's, you know, on par with what the internet has done for communication and information. This is doing the same thing for value and money. And so realizing that Bitcoin was an actual technology innovation and not just something that goes up and down on a chart that people are betting on in terms of price, uh, that's what got me really excited about it. So yeah, as you mentioned, uh, I joined Polymath actually as a company first. That was my first real job in crypto after helping people buy and safely store Bitcoin. And we were talking a bit before about some before we started recording about some crypto collapses and, and one big one in Canada, so I'm originally from Canada, was Quadriga. Uh, and so Quadriga was an exchange that was the biggest one in Canada. And, you know, it went blast and the founder maybe died, maybe didn't die. We've seen that about Gerald's Cotton. Um, and all the, all the crypto is gone. And so helping people safely navigate that and learn how to use a ledger wallet and store crypto safely was really rewarding for me. But yeah, so first real job at Polymath where we were the first company to start building anything in terms of compliance infrastructure on Ethereum for securities. Mm. And so at the time it was early 2017 and people had started creating the VRC20 tokens and doing these ICO things. And we said, okay, cool. People are selling tokens, but these tokens don't really have any claim to any real underlying app. So yeah, you can, you, you know, maybe eventually they will, or you can share some revenue with someone or function like a governance token for a DAO. But what we said is, this would work really well for stocks and for bonds and derivatives and real estate and for actual ownership of anyone that anyone can think of. But when you get into the world of securities, there's a lot of compliance criteria that no one had thought about building on Ethereum. Um, so anyone could send any token anywhere, anytime, do anything. And that doesn't really work from a securities law perspective. You could potentially have people from North Korea hold equity in your company, which for, uh, you know, a lot of jurisdictions around the world, that's a big no-no. Um, so after we started building on Polymath, um, we built the ERC-1400 standard, which became the most widely implemented standard on Ethereum. Um, but on top of that, the Polymath Token Studio, where over 200 assets were created on Ethereum. But what we kept noticing time and time again is we, we had some great adoption, but you know it was billions of dollars and there's 
quadrillions of dollars of securities potentially if you include derivatives. And so, you know, why wasn't the adoption there in terms of what we thought it should be? And it was because banks didn't like using Ethereum for this use case. We kept trying to convince them, use this public permissionless blockchain, uh, use this technology that we've created, but they're just like, you know what? It's still a little bit too scary for us. We can't use it. Uh, there were issues with settlement, issues with identity, governance, compliance, and copy out. confidentiality was a big one as well. Um, so we actually started building our own blockchain, and that's what Polymesh is. So Polymesh is a layer one blockchain built just for regulated assets and financial securities. So the Polymesh Association was created, and that's where the IP for the Polymesh blockchain lives. And the Polymesh Association is a not-for-profit entity. Uh, really built for, for expanding the Polymesh ecosystem. So, you know, me and a few others from Polymath team, we left to go to the Polymesh Association and, and that's what we've been doing now uh, for two years. So B is for Bitcoin. You are the author of, is this your first uh, book you've ever written? And uh, I would love just to h- high level learn about that. For sure. Yeah. Uh, first book I've ever written. Uh, so B is for Bitcoin is the first ever ABC book about Bitcoin. So it's designed for kids, but Adults are the ones who buy books and they're the ones who are excited about Bitcoin. And so really, really what was happening in terms of the idea of that and, and why I pursued that was my sister was having a kid. So I had a niece that was on the way and I was thinking, okay, do I want to read to her A is for Apple, B is for ball? Like not really, you know, everyone's yeah. done that throughout the course of history. I wanted to read to her A is for altcoins, busts and booms, B is for Bitcoin went. <laughs> and so, so I wrote, I wrote B is for Bitcoin. Uh, I started it in 2015. Just a note, uh, is this in my notes folder on my phone and kind of finished it and was like, okay, cool. Yeah, maybe I'll do that someday. And then in 2018, uh, I was sitting uh, in the polymath office and one of my buddies goes, why don't you just make that book already? And I was like, you know, I don't really know. How and, you know, maybe I have to find a publisher and I'm not going to be the one who illustrates it. And it was like, just go on Upwork right now, hire, hire some illustrator and he'll have a value mark. And so I did that. It was super easy, super easy to self-publish it. So yeah, if, if anybody has any book ideas that you're thinking of doing, just Go do it. I, I was going to say, like, we um, have a six month old. So, this is something I need to get in front of them ASAP. So, they definitely need to start speaking. Yeah. Before we get deep into polymers, we'd love to hear kind of like, I guess, how, you know, certainly BS for blockchain or Bitcoin is, is Bitcoin focused. Like, how do you balance like getting into like doing the permission blockchain from starting with Bitcoin, which I think is a journey that most people understand or, you know, have in their, their careers is okay. Like I understand Bitcoin, but then like, why do we need permission blockchains and how do we make the corporate entities that coins trying to get away from actually see the value in this? Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. And, and it's almost like one that a lot of people kind of grapple with. It's like Bitcoin is exciting because anyone can do anything at any time. But it, while I'm excited about that, I also live in the real world and understand that governments exist and that securities laws exist. And that a bank that has trillions of dollars of their clients' assets, they're never going to go on their on their own. Even if it's a slight gray area, they just simply will not do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the thing about Polymesh is, is, right, we were building our Ethereum and they said, public, completely permissionless blockchains aren't working for us. Um, but, but it's even more beyond that. Um, I mentioned governance. And so a big thing for banks that they saw, and I think Ernst and Young put out this paper maybe a few years ago, and it was after the DAO fork um, of Ethereum and Ethereum Classic, where let's imagine you have a trillion dollars of your client's assets invested into stocks, and they're all on Ethereum, free DAO fork. And then after the DAO fork, 
where are the real securities on? Are they on chain A or are they on chain B? Do you have to pause trading for six months until Vitalik tells you for sure which one is the real one? Do you have to wait for the mining chain power to go on one chain versus the other? Do you wait for the underlying ETH versus ETH class token to go up or down? And so those concerns are really big for institutions as well. So on Polymesh, there's always one canonical version of the chain. Of course, someone could rip the open source code and they could build their own, you know, Polymesh too, but there would always be Polymesh. Whereas on Ethereum with the DAO fork, you know, it, it wasn't certain at all which one is Ethereum, but pretty much what happened is Vitalik Buterin said this one's Ethereum. So everyone said, okay, that's Ethereum. You know, that's just a governance issue that banks simply cannot deal with um, for, for regulated assets. Another big one is settlement as well. So on something like Ethereum or Bitcoin or Solana or whatever, take your pick. If I find out your address, I can send you anything I want and you can't say no. Um, that is a, that was a huge issue for banks. Um, so when Visa announced about a crypto punk, you know, I sent them some tokens. Um, people sent them NFTs of illicit photos. And so now Visa has to, what do they have on their balance sheet? You know, a photo of a penis like that, like that is insane. And, and so that's just something that banks look at and they go, okay, we just can't use this in any meaningful way because what that settlement type of infrastructure allows for is unknown, unquantifiable potential tax liabilities. And so I could send Visa five bucks. Now Visa has to account for that, like on their quarterly statements and report to their board and say, we don't know who Xerox 123 is, but it's Graham and Graham sent them five bucks. Or maybe I was in North Korea when I did that just because I wanted to mess with Visa. Yeah. And so a bunch of huge issues. So on Polymetro, we said is okay, that's not how settlement works in the traditional finance world. What banks and custodians and broker dealers are used to is all parties in a trade must defer settlement instructions before settlement can take place. So both sender and receiver and potentially other senders and receivers, if it's a multi-leg settlement, they all have to say, yes, I want settlement to take place, and settlement can take place. So there's just a whole bunch of little strange things like that, that not everybody is aware of in terms of how, you know, the traditional finance world functions, where when Vitalik made, Vitalik and, and team, obviously, uh, you know, sawed up Ethereum in 2014 and they could create a blockchain. You know, they didn't really think of that. But we, after building on Ethereum for two years, said, okay, here are the issues with Ethereum for this one use case. Let's see if we can make a better blockchain. Yeah. I guess quick follow up question to that. So I guess this is a selling point for you then when, you know, Tornado Cash, you know, the big mixer was, um, sanctioned by the government. And then you have people that are using, you know, these tiny Tornado Cash Bitcoin and they're airdropping it. Or any other assets, and you're dropping into Jimmy Fallon's wallet and other celebrities' wallets. So everyone is tainted by this. That seems like a really good selling point, you guys. It is, yeah. And, and I mean that that was a huge thing that you know banks saw that and went, oh no, that's scary. You know, personally, I think it's really it, it doesn't make any sense that you can say if if some Ethereum went into Tornado Cash and it came at the other side, it's automatically tainted. You know that that in my opinion doesn't make any sense. The the United States government saying that. A specific smart contract is, is bad and anything that goes through it doesn't make sense. And I think, you know, after the other Jimmy Fallon spray and everyone's wallet gets sprayed with all this little bit of ETH, I think they kind of walk that back or at least they're not enforcing anything. You know, I don't think they arrested Jimmy Fallon after that. So, um, so, you know, I, I, I think that's less of a huge deal, but again, it's a huge question mark and banks do not like those question marks. And so for us to say, you know, that cannot happen in, in this environment, that just makes them a lot more questionable. How far away do you see? Because I've seen this shift, right? We were joking before we, we started recording about it's no longer just going to be these pictures of cats when it is moving more towards institutional. Can you talk more about this concept of like the public permission blockchain and, and why that's important uh, as you go through 
towards institutions. For sure. We talked about settlement. We talked about the governance. I, I think identity is another key point uh, where banks, you know, just look at something like Bitcoin and Ethereum and they go, you know, putting billion dollars of, uh, you know, one of our closest clients debt instruments on this blockchain, they just get kind of nervous. And so one of the reason is, you know, on Ethereum, anyone can do anything on Bitcoin, anyone can do anything on Polymesh. All the users have to actually pass the KYC process to use the blockchain. So that's what banks are used to. That's what custodians are used to. So it was giving them more comfort from that side of things. And then the other big thing, uh, that we heard from, from a few very large financial institutions, um, was issues around paying gas fees on public blockchains. And so I think that's slightly changing now the perception, but, but here is the issue that they brought up is let's say I trade a hundred million dollar bond. Um, and I gave it on Ethereum and I pay $5 in gas fees to do that. What if that block gets mined by a miner in North Korea? Now, you know, let's say it's, it was JP Morgan who traded that bond. JP Morgan just sent $5 directly to North Korea. Um, so that's just a huge concern for them or the Lazarus group, which is in North Korea or, you know, Al Qaeda or wherever, you know, take your pit or even someone in Iran that they're not able to deal with or even just someone who's not KYC. They don't know. And so that aspect really concerns them as well. And so on Polymesh, all of the node operators, so, so it's a proof of stake blockchain, so all the validators called node operators, all the node operators are licensed financial entities. So, you know, they might be a broker dealer, they might be a custodian license, and some type of financial license that allows them to engage in capital markets. And so, uh, again, it's all about how do we get banks to issue their first trillion dollars of assets on chain? And we think it has to be a public permission blockchain with these types of guardrails. Now, how- you know, this stuff always takes longer than you think, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Canadian, uh, by birth. So, you know, we always talk about hockey sticks. And so, you know, we're, we're just almost at that, you know, inflection point where we see tiny bit of growth, tiny bit of growth, tiny bit of growth, and then straight upwards. Um, I think it's a huge thing that recently happened. So you mentioned BMP. So that was really cool. Um, so BMP is the, I believe, ninth largest bank in the world, uh, fifth largest outside of China maybe fourth largest outside of China, one of the, but you know, huge amount of assets under management. They use the, the ERC 1400 standard that we created on Ethereum RT. Um, and so that was really cool to see, you know, they did a, uh, I think it was a green bond from same, an energy company. So yeah, very cool to see that kind of adoption. SoftGen has done something as well. SoftGen I actually think as well, interacting with the MakerDAO protocol um, and tried to uh, allow their bond to be used as collateral in MakerDAO. So. You know, it is happening. Um, the questions and the comments that we were getting from banks 2017 to now is night and day. Like you wouldn't even guess it's the same people at these organizations, just their understanding is completely different. And one really positive and encouraging thing that, that I think I've seen is they understand the bifurcation of different things in the, so originally in 2015, 2017, everything was the same. You know, Bitcoin equaled Ethereum, equaled NFTs, equaled smart contracts, equaled DAOs, equaled hacks, equaled scams. Everything was the same. It was all lumped together. Now they clearly understand what's happening. You know, there are regulated assets being issued on blockchains like stocks and bonds. There are DAOs. There are NFTs. There are good NFTs and bad NFTs. There are protocol tokens. There are, you know, lending platforms, DeFi platforms, DEXs. All of these things, they're starting to understand and make much more sense of the landscape and that there's actually innovation happening in all these different areas. And so I think that's been a really encouraging thing to see. And then, then the most recent news has been BlackRock. Um, you know, that overshadows, I'd say everything. 
Um, fun, fun fact of the day. I was the first person to tweet, uh, the, the founding on NASDAQ. And then I was the first person to tell CoinDesk about the surveillance sharing agreement. And so everyone has had the surveillance sharing agreement. Like I, I told the world about that. And now, you know, all, all anybody cares about is what you're the Adam Schechter of, uh, crypto. <laughs> I, I tried, I tried for a day. Right. And, but then, you know, everybody else stole my thunder a little bit after. But, um, so, so I think that's huge, right? Largest asset manager in the world says our clients should be able to hold this asset in a vehicle that we that we offer and so that that is so huge and i think people are still somehow underestimating the impact of that where you know when blackrock says something's okay like that that is huge and and i think we're going to see a lot of movement now um with more institutions going okay hold on so blackrock says it's okay fidelity says it's okay um, you know, all of these other organizations say it's okay. JP Morgan owns part of Consensus, uh, which is MetaMask. So I can actually use a wallet um, because JP Morgan says it's okay. I, I think I think we're going to see a huge amount of adoption in the very near term. Now, I always wondered about this, just knowing that crypto is 24-7, right? How do the ETFs then mitigate, you know, a big spike or a big drop when the markets close? Do you know? Yeah. So, so, I mean, there, there's a lot of hours trading that goes on now, uh, in markets. And I mean, it's kind of the same thing with gold, right? Like people are still selling their gold at a pawn shop on Saturday. And then, you know, mm-hmm. that potentially reflected in the price on Monday or not, depending on if it moves or not. Um, but you know, on that one interesting thing that I love talking about is, you know, the SEC's position about not allowing a spot Bitcoin ETF because there can be manipulation in the Bitcoin markets. Right. When oil, when the price of oil is literally controlled by a cartel that we all know by name called OPEC. Yeah. So like oil ETFs are fine and they're allowed because, you know, OPEC is a thing that exists, but it's a literal cartel that decides the price on a day to day basis. But that, that's fine. But Bitcoin hasn't been fine. So I think that's again, why that surveillance sharing agreement is so important where what happened with all the spot ETF filing prior was everyone just said, oh, the SEC hates us, boo-hoo, you know, let's just keep putting the same application forward. BlackRock looked at the SEC's position and said, fine, we believe you. Sure, let's say there's manipulation in the Bitcoin market, but do you trust NASDAQ to say that this data is fine? And so that's, you know, why a lot of people are now saying that this might finally be the first one that gets a pre-paint from a spot Bitcoin ETF perspective, because they're just taking the SEC at their word and saying, sure, there's manipulation, sure, maybe. But if NASDAQ says there's not, then you can't really go against NASDAQ who, you know, has a ton of ETS, has a ton of stocks trading on it you know, every single day. Mm-hmm. See, like, Graham, you mentioned you were like started out in real estate. I was like a real estate major in college and dad, grandfather, you know, all in the space. And now you're, you know, in current assets, but a different type of digital hard assets. Like, you know, we'd love to hear like one, like, how does that like translate over? Like, how's that like different concepts translated over into what you're doing with Polymesh? As well as like, we'd love to hear, you know, um, I think a lot of like listeners don't fully understand like how like a tokenization process works. Like, could you describe maybe like an ideal project cycle for you? Like meeting with a bank, what that looks like from a project to like idea to getting deal signed to doing like testing to like get that launched. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So, so I think it has been a nice crossover, you know, when, when essentially one of the huge use cases right now is real estate being tokenized. Um, and, and I think it's nice when people, you know, when they go on my LinkedIn, uh, for example, and they see Christian like, they go, oh, okay, cool. You know, maybe this person knows at least a tiny bit. And, you know, when they use some terms like, like NOI or whatever cap rate, you know, I'm not going to have my eyes glazed over and I'll roughly understand about what they're talking about. 
Um, and so now the process works for something like that. And so we, we've worked with a number of different companies to do that. Um, some that are hopefully going to be announced very soon. Um, and so the process is, is, is very similar to the traditional process. Um, so I, I think one of the, one of the common misconceptions about tokenization is that it's a crazy new thing that's never existed before and, and real estate owners or banks have no idea how to do it, but all the paperwork is essentially the same. You know, figuring out what type of offering you want to use, whether you want to do an exempt offering in the U.S. or an offering outside the U.S. to offshore investors. Uh, who do you want to be able to have access to this asset? What kind of promotional materials can you do? You know, how can you sell it? All those kinds of things are essentially the same. Well, what's different is a lot of the back office stuff. So instead of using, you know, part of, for example, to, to take care of, you know, who owns what stocks at a startup or something like that, or using, um, one of the giant conglomerates that have a back office somewhere, you know, you use a token on the blockchain. And so that's really where the difference comes in is how do you want to keep track of who owns what and what software do you want to use to enforce compliance criteria? So traditionally to enforce compliance criteria, a company just calls a transfer agent and says, Hey, transfer agent, you know, make sure that we don't get sued by the SEC because the transfer agent is ultimately on the hook. And you can still use a transfer agent in the blockchain world. And there are transfer agents that are currently operating on blockchains. And it's actually much easier for them to do so. Um, cause in the past, you know, there might be pieces of paper sitting in a filing cabinet somewhere with some lawyer and one of your, uh, investors decides to sell to someone else. And then the lawyer might sign off on something, but maybe they weren't allowed to based on some type of lockup that they had. But, you know, maybe the transfer agent okayed it and they have to go back in time and then change the transfer. I mean, all that kind of stuff can happen when you're dealing with, you know, a paper-based system where human beings are involved. The cool thing about tokenization, you can just pre-program all those compliance rules. And so you can say 0x123ABC is John Smith. He's from the United States. He's locked up until this date. And he literally, it's not able for him to move tokens. And so you know that for sure the compliance rules can be followed up to a certain lockup date. Um, you can also implement volume transfer restrictions. So all that stuff can, can effectively be done very simply. But, you know, getting back to you know, how do you work with a company? A company doesn't even need to talk to Polymesh, even if they want to issue an asset on Polymesh. Same way they don't call Vitalik and issue an, uh, an asset on Ethereum. You know, they don't, they don't necessarily call us. On um, that being said, a lot of companies do want to call us. You know, they want to talk to us. They want to better understand the Polymesh blockchain. They want to better understand how to work together. We might be able to, you know, introduce that into a company that can handle something like transferring services, if that's something that they want. Um, but really it, it comes down, comes down to, you know, them wanting to create the asset, doing the same paperwork they did before, and then potentially using a company like Polymath, you know, who provides, uh, you know, services to keep track of, of shares or someone else like DigiShares is another company we work with on the Polymath blockchain. Um, or if they just want to do it themselves, you know, if you're doing the $1 million offering, and, th and this is, this is something that I really find exciting about tokenization is, Smaller offerings are going to become much more feasible because you might be able to do, some, do something outside the U.S. You might be able to get some type of uh, exempt offering type, and you might be able to do something where you know doing a million dollar offering previously might not make sense because listing on an ATS can cost something like twenty five thousand dollars, and you might have to pay ten thousand dollars every month. And so we've heard those kinds of quotes from ATSs in the legacy world, but now you could just issue an asset. You can, of course, still, you know, hire your legal team and, and hire a securities lawyer and make sure you do it properly, but issue a token for a hundred bucks and then have it trading on a deck compliantly because the blockchain software itself is keeping track of who can and who cannot hold assets. 
And now it's trading on a DEX and you have an asset that's trading 24 seven through 65 anywhere in the world compliantly cross jurisdictionally where you're paying essentially $0 not keep. So that's one thing that's really exciting is people tokenizing heads, people tokenizing an apartment building, people tokenizing these small bits of real estate where previously it was just, it was infeasible because it cost so much money from a legal overhead and administrative overhead uh, standpoint. So we talked a little bit about regulation. Uh, Polymers just had a report that highlighted some of the leadership uh, within APAC, so like South Korea, Singapore, Hong Kong, in terms of like their regulatory developments. At the same time, you know, if you look at the news, you see a lot of the U.S. regulators running away from the crypto space. So there's a lot of uncertainty here in the U.S. And at the same time, you got BlackRock. So can you just touch on a little bit of some of those highlights from APAC and share how Asia is helping perhaps the U.S. with some of this regulatory shakeout here? Yeah, I, I think the, the main takeaway is Asia and, and those three countries specifically that we highlighted in the report, Hong Kong, Singapore, and uh, Korea, they're actually doing things uh, on the legislative side. And so that's been really the huge issue uh, that's really plagued America right now, is that the SEC has, and, and Gary Gensler has said some wild quotes about this, almost kind of like anything the sun touches is mine and, and things of that nature, where the problem is because Congress hasn't made any specific legislation yet on the token side of things, Gary is just able to, in his mind, say, all of these things are security, so they're all under my purview. I'm assuming we probably don't think that's the case. Bitcoin seems like a commodity. Ethereum seems like a commodity. A lot of these tokens seem like commodities. And some of them seem like something else that didn't previously exist. So try to shove every single crypto asset into this one specific acting, whatever it is, 1933, just doesn't really make a lot of sense. And so the key takeaway that we learned in our research was that, you know, Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea, they're actually issuing legislation from the government and not relying on their securities regulator to assume everything is under their purview. And so it's been very positive and I think we'll start to see a lot of companies do a lot more asset issuances of those jurisdictions rather than the United States until Congress passes something that starts to make sense and provides some clear rules of the road. Public regulations are dynamic topics. Are there any recent dynamics you in regulation used to that's you would want to weigh in on? I know you mentioned around this surveillance share agreement you first is it on Twitter. What's gonna be like do you think's gonna be the next like headline that you're gonna tweet first on Twitter? And and just to piggyback on that question a little bit, Jody, we mentioned BlackRock and like we just saw PayPal came out with a stable coin. Do you think some of this corporate news flow will put added pressure on, on some of the regulators as well? I think it is, right? And and that's I, I feel like really what you see with any kind of new technological innovation. And so one, one thing I love talking about, you know, in the 90s, the United States government tried to ban encryption. They, they tried to say that encryption should not be allowed. And they actually tried to say that using encryption on the internet was exporting munitions. So you would be defined as a terrorist for using encryption on the internet. Like that was something that like you can actually go look it up. It's insane. Like not a, not every, a lot of people know about this, but you can go look it up. The United States tried to say, they needed a backdoor into every single communication and piece of information that was out on the internet, which would have killed the internet completely. You will, no one would be able to use credit cards because eventually that backdoor would be hacked or something. Um, no one would be comfortable sharing information. You would not be able to have, you know, signal, WhatsApp, credit card information flow. Yeah. Bitcoin, you couldn't could have anything on the internet. And so what happened is the industry that was building out the internet, you know, this I don't know exactly what it was, but you know, let's assume you know, Yahoo, companies like that, 
they went to Congress and they said, hey, this is a really bad idea. Uh, and let's show you why it's a bad idea. And so I think with any kind of new technology, you just get regulators who, you know, now I think the average age of someone in Congress is something like 70. It, it, it's something astronomical like that, where, you know, maybe you should have term limits and we can discuss that on another podcast. But when you get old people and these brand new technology innovations and the headlines they read are Sam Bankman Freed steals billions of dollars and they don't really see a lot of other headlines, they just get scared and they go, oh, well, we should ban this thing. Uh, we should ban these things. Some concerns, constituents of mine called me and said, we need to ban this. So let's ban it. And what happens instead when you get BlackRock, money to issue an ETF and you get PayPal issuing a stablecoin companies that you know people have learned to trust over the years, they start to be the ones to go to Congress and say, hey, we need to figure this stuff out and you need to listen to us because we actually know what's going on. And they have the political capital and the monetary capital to actually get through to politicians. And so I think, yeah, any development where any kind of big established company is starting to use cryptocurrency or operate to their clients or use security tokens, in any way, I, th- I think that's very, very positive and, and, you know, similar to the early internet where, you know, the government literally tried to ban encryption, but luckily didn't after some, some thoughtful insight from market participants. We got the Canada out of you as well. You said out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course. Of course. To wrap this up, what do you say for, in terms of polymesh, what are some of the more exciting opportunities and potential challenges that you're seeing in, in the next three, six, 12 months for you? Yeah, one really cool thing that we did recently is a top 10 stock exchange issued a carbon credit on Polymesh. So we're under NDA, we can't discuss the name of that, but that's been a really interesting development recently where a lot of the concerns around using blockchains or securities has been for institutions being worried about things, uh, about data not being private. And so, you know, on a public blockchain, people can see whatever you're doing, but institutions want other people to see what they're doing in terms of carbon credits. They want people to do what they're seeing in terms of green bonds. And so that information, they're actually comfortable publishing. And so that could be a one really huge use case where blockchain really starts to take over and gain a huge amount of market share. Additionally, because, you know, where do you go to trade carbon credits today? Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't know. There's not really an established uh, market where everyone goes. However, when you look at where do you go to trade public stocks today, you, know, you go to NASDAQ, you go to the New York Stock Exchange, you go to your brokerage account, and those are very well established and understood paths, but for new assets that haven't really existed before, you know, carbon credits, green bonds, uh, tokenized real estate of something in another country that you didn't really have previous access to, these new markets and new instruments are really exciting places for blockchain to really take shape because they can become the dominant players uh, in terms of where liquidity ends up. Love it. Well, thank you for coming on, Graham. You are the first of many amazing guests on the Blockfield podcast. But as you mentioned, we'd love to have you back in, in, a, in a few months and see where your head's at with everything. Thanks, Seth. Really appreciate it. This was fun.